dependent on Please open them to James, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but, dece- but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God shall endure forever and ever. As we're preaching through this book of James, I have been thinking a lot about the fact that James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, I just just, think think about that a lot, been thinking about it a lot. What was that like? Because they have the same mother... They have different fathers. You know, Joseph was the adopted father of Jesus. Uh, God the Father is his father. Mary, the Virgin Mary, is his mother. Um, and Joseph and Mary go on to have other children, um, brothers and sisters. Jesus had a pretty large family, it appears from the scriptures. But anyhow, what? Um, how are? How was Jesus like James? I mean, you know, um, I'm. I've got something in common with Joseph. Um, I'm an adopted father. And it's a great privilege to adopt children. And my kids are not genetically related to me, but uh, they have become like me in more ways than I can imagine. Not all good. Um, In fact, two of my kids tested out on a profile just like me. 
that's kind of weird, um, especially when you consider one kid out of 49 at, at the school several years ago tested out like me, you know, kind of wild and crazy. So, and Catherine said at that time, well, now I understand why y'all drive me crazy. There's, there's three of you. But I, I just uh, wonder how are Jesus and, and James alike um, and just speculate. And, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us that. But if you look at the scriptures, um, I think something's pretty clear. Um, they are both, and I don't know where they got this, probably from the Bible, from hearing teaching in the synagogue and so forth. But they are both metaphorical people. They use metaphors all the time in their teaching. And I went through this, I went through the book, and I just marked, um, I didn't depend on the comments. I was just interested in seeing this. I went through and I counted 49 metaphorical words or phrases that are used by James. I mean, there's everywhere. And the more I read, the more, oh yeah, I remember this. I read this before years ago or whatever, and you don't forget about the tongue being a fire or like a rudder on a ship. There's things like, you just don't forget that stuff, right? And so James and, and Jesus both are, are metaphorical people. But I, I would uh, suggest to you that the greatest metaphor that James uses uh, is the metaphor about the Word of God. It's very important for us to remember this. Grant did a great job of preaching about it last week. Let me remind you, he says that the Word of God is like a seed. Jesus says that, doesn't he? The parable of the sowers and so forth. And the Word of God is implanted in us, and we are born again through the Spirit as he applies the Word, as he teaches us the gospel. He teaches us that Jesus lived the life we cannot live. Jesus died the death we should have died, and he was raised. And if we believe in in Jesus Christ... um, we are justified before God. We are adopted into His family and so forth. Uh, that's, that's the beautiful um, truth of the gospel. That seed grows in us and it produces salvation. But the seed also, and here's where it gets weird in my weird metaphorical self. The, the seed's planted in there, but then it kind of grows outside, grows out of you. And it turns into a mirror. So all of us have... If you just look around the room, everybody's got this mirror attached to them. Um, And we'll talk more about that in weeks ahead. But it's such a beautiful metaphor for us to to carry with us all the time. I mean, you've got the mirror with you. And you need to be doing, you need to be looking in the mirror. Um, When you're driving, you look in the mirror every now and then, right? To be safe. And that's what we are to do with the Word of God. and the mirror, what does it show us? It shows us who God is. shows that He's a glorious person. It also shows that we fall short of His glory. And again, leads us to Jesus Christ. Um, and every day as Christians, we look in that mirror. We're not saved again. But God shows us our need because we still fall short of the glory of God. That's present tense. I say that all the time. That's not something in the past. You still fall short of the glory of God. I do too. Every day. And that's why we need Repentance and renewal is a way of life. And God graciously is transforming us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And, and he does it through the mirror. He reminds us, you are forgiven. Rick, I have forgiven you. And let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, and he reminds us, most importantly, as Grant pointed out from that catechism, we belong to him. He says, you are mine. 
you belong to the Lord. So we see all those things in the mirror. And as you look at through the, the rest of the book, as you look in this mirror, um, James is going to break down. You know, this is probably a sermon. People people believe this is this whole book's a sermon. Um, they, uh, if you you'll see that James uses three specific areas that we need to be paying attention to as we look in the mirror of God's word. The first is the way we talk, the way we talk to God, the way we talk to other people. Is our life a life full of praise or is it just, Lord, help me fulfill my agenda? <laughs> how are we talking to God? Uh, how, how do we speak to one another? That's, that's very important. How do you care for other people? That's what this passage is about. How do you care for those who are in need, who don't have what the blessings that you've been given? And, gen- and how, do you, how are you living in general as a Christian? Just Are you growing in the holiness of the Lord? Um, that's, those are the three categories that, that um, James says, hey, look in the mirror and see how your talk is. See how your care for others is going and see how you're living just in general. Um, and in chapter 1, the reason we did chapter 1 at the end there, he's talking about true, true religion. Right? He uses that word religion. It's not a bad word. But then he tells you what religion is. True religion is faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes on in that category of caring for other people as we look in the mirror of God. He says, beware of the sin of partiality. It's got no place in the life of a Christian, in the life of faith. There's no place for partiality. And there's two questions we're looking at this morning. What is partiality? Well, we all know what it is. We've felt it many, many times in our lives. What is it? And what's the remedy to the sin of partiality? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that that you are so gracious to speak to us. This is not just a biography about um, some dead person. This is the living word of a living king that points to him. And Lord Jesus, I pray you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. And Father, I pray that you would bring glory to your son. Um, Holy Spirit, uh, glorify the Son in all the earth and right here in our hearts today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what is partiality? Well, James uh, gives us his um, own down-to-earth story metaphor to illustrate what partiality is. He says two, wor- two strangers come into a worship service, right? And you've got the ushers, and they're trying to find a place for them to sit. It's very down to earth. It's just a timeless illustration. Uh, and so they're, they're trying to figure out where these people are to sit. And we have a, an extensive training program here at Faith Presbyterian Church for our ushers. I don't know if you know that or not. But we, we go through all this training. And to be an usher, there's a certain way you have to do it. And um, you have to have a certain haircut. I'm sorry, I just could not resist that. It just, it just, it just walked right up there to me. Okay. Uh, but these, these ushers, they go through extensive training, and, uh, and they, they do a wonderful job. But the main thing is we go through this training program. Um, Grant instituted this um, in his administrative mind. He said, the main thing we teach them is to be on the lookout for people wearing gold rings and fine clothes. Okay. 
Well, if you get the illustration, it's, it's very, very clear. Very clear. Again, his illustration is timeless. And James is saying, if you pay more attention to the rich guy, you've shown partiality. If you pay attention, more attention to the good-looking guy with nice clothes, you've shown partiality. And we know he's right, don't we? We know it's right. We've all experienced this. We have all have, have our own sh- stories where we have been ignored and perhaps belittled um, because we're different. Um, in our approach to life we may just look different than the rest of the people around us Um, partiality is a sin and you and I need to hear this just like the first century um, James was a pastor he he was preaching this to his congregation and we need to hear this in the 21st century as well partiality is a sin and when we show favoritism basically again in essence We're denying our faith. I hope that will be clear as we continue uh, through this passage together. You know, in the 21st century, we don't need to be reminded. uh, We don't have to make a case for uh, that partiality is wrong. The world wouldn't call it a sin. That word's not used. You know, it's like, it's wrong. What does that mean? What does it mean for something to be wrong? I mean, sin is not in our vocabulary. But the world agrees that discrimination and prejudice and partiality, racism, are wrong. And it's one of the favorite things you see on the news. And people are always saying, yeah, don't you see all the problems that we have in our world? It's because of partiality. That's basically what they're saying. And everybody in the world is doing this. They're saying, stop doing it. Stop racism. Stop discrimination. But after a while, you know, but how's that working for us? I mean, really, how's it working for us? Perhaps it's better. Sinfulness of sin is still there. There's nothing good in the flesh of of my flesh or your flesh. So it's still a struggle. But, you know, as we hear it so much, it's almost become like a cry. You know, the cry for a wolf, the little boy that cries wolf, right? We hear it so much that we're kind of numb to it. You know, if you see how things are very, very popular, I'm old enough to see that. Things are like, ah! This is what you got to pay attention to. And five years from now, what, what will we be talking about, right? What other thing will, be, will we be focused on to correct in our own power? But I want you to listen to how James addresses the problem of partiality. He doesn't just say, stop showing partiality. It's like in any other sin. Stop it. That's not what he does. He says from this letter and this passage, basically what you do flows from who you are. That's what he's saying. What you do 
flows from who you are. And you see that right up front in the first verse of this chapter. And, and let me tell you what I mean. Look at verse 1. ESV says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Um, there's a lot of translations of this, a lot of different translations. And when you, if you, first thing you do when you're studying a passage is you look it up in the English, if you're an English speaker. You know, you look at it in English translations. Look at the NIV, look at the ESV, look at the NIV, blah, blah, blah. Um, and if you do this, for this verse, you'll see they're all different. And it means, okay, we gotta, what, what are we doing? What does it mean? And, and all the translations get to the heart of what, what they're saying. But I think, um, what, to get to what James is saying, I think it's best rendered this way. And I should have printed it out in the bulletin, but just please listen. This is what I, literally it says. You must not hold the faith with favoritism. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the glory. You must not hold the faith with favoritism. Faith in Christ and favoritism don't go together. The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ... And this is the key. It's where we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about this. Who is the glory? That's literally what it says. Now, I know that that translation is wooden and literal. It doesn't flow like the ESV or the NIV. But it gets to the heart of what James wants to emphasize. uh, Because he's taking that mirror and he's showing us the struggle of the sin of partiality, our struggle with the sin of partiality. We all all have this struggle. I'm just sharing with the Sunday school people. I go on, you know, Grant used the Walmart thing yesterday, last time. I go into Walmart. Every time I go into Walmart, I, I feel superior to people in Walmart. And I don't mean that funny. I don't mean that. I don't mean it funny. I'm just, I'm telling you, I do. I, feel, I don't look like that. I'm old and 65 and got one foot in the grave. But, you know, this is, but I, my pride just immediately just ignites. I am not like them. And I'm basically saying, I'm made in God's image, but they're kind of made in God's image, right? <laughs> That ain't good, y'all. And you do the same thing. I know. I mean, we all got that competitive pride. Just wait till football season. Uh, you know? Right? And y'all are going to say, I told you we were going to get you. And you are. That's going to happen. I'm, re- I'm preparing myself for that. Uh, but James is showing the mirror, pulling it out of his pocket uh, to show us that we struggle with the sin of partiality. But his main goal is to point us to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always his goal. That's always the goal of Scripture. He wants us to remember who we are because we have been united to him by faith. That's his goal. He wants us to remember that we belong to him. That's Number one priority. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus Christ? Who is he? Who is our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, James says he is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory. So, you're not helping me much, preacher. Uh, what does it mean for Jesus to be the glory? I'm going to tell you what it means. Because you need to hear it. I need to hear it. You remember, James, is um, this is the first book written in the New Testament. 
Right? There's no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's no Romans. There's no Philippians. Certainly not Revelation. None of it's there. And so we don't have Paul's grand theology of the glory of God to, to go to for a backup, right? Paul talks about God's glory all the time. Uh, and But the good news is that James knew the same Bible that Paul did, the same Bible that Jesus taught out of. Uh, and in Exodus 33, you have the story of Moses and God's glory. And every Jew who had stepped foot in a synagogue would treasure this passage. And what, here's what's going on in Moses, uh, Exodus 33. Moses is upset. He's downcast because the people are, have acted out the golden calf and all the this, this sin. They failed miserably. And Moses is worried about the future of God's people. Will God stay with us after this great sin and rebellion? Will he take us to the promised land like he promised? And then Moses prays something all of you should pray and I should pray every day. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm trying to do this. Lord, show me your glory. Lord, show me your glory. And Yahweh, that's the Lord. You remember, this is important. In the Old Testament, when it's L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you know, when we're doing the, you know, the password for Roku or whatever, and Catherine's reading that to capital, what? Capital, um, all caps, or no, it's H, capital O. You know, it's important to, we know about capitalization, okay? If you look in the Old Testament, when it's capital L, O-R-D. All in caps. It's the sacred name for Yahweh. That's what it means. That's, how, that's, that's when that name, it shows up hundreds of times. The Old Testament is about Yahweh. That's God's sacred covenantal name. Um, and we see that he says in his grace to Moses. You know, God has such a gracious heart. This is what he says to him. He says... I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. Remember, Moses says, can I see, Lord, let me see your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you before you my name. And here's what I want you to see. You know, when you say someone is glorious, it's not just what they look like. I mean, we, we know glorious people with physical beauty and handsome people, beautiful people, and so forth. But it's not just what, glory is not just what you look like. And God appeared in a visible fire, um, the glory cloud and so forth. And the people wouldn't just have yawned. Oh yeah, there's the cloud. And they'd be going like this. What? You still there? Right. Glory is a visible thing, but when God's glory passes before Moses, it's indescribable. And so, therefore, it has an, in, uh, an invisible component, if you would. We walk by faith, not by sight. So, you know, again, glory is such an abstract concept. But when you think about glory in the Bible, it's mostly tied up 
this is what I want you to hear. It's mostly tied up with what the person does. Who they be, right, will reflect what they do. And because God is this glorious God, we will see His glory in how He lives His life. Again, we, we all know people who've lived glorious lives, right? We admire these people and we would say they're, they're glorious people. So when God says, I will show you my glory, in effect, He's saying, I will come to you myself. I'm going to show up and I'm going to reveal my goodness. In other words, I will spell out my nature to you, who I am. In other words, again, glory is a very abstract concept, but God's glory in shorthand is God's personal presence in all His goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't come away from that, with that, when you've been praying or when you've been in worship. Something's not connecting. Taste and see the Lord is good. The Lord's glory is His personal presence in all His goodness. In all His goodness. And that's who Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord's personal presence in all His goodness. Why do we say that? Because Jesus is the Lord. What does that mean? Have you been paying attention? You, I, most of you know this. But again, going back to the Old Testament, L-O-R-D in all caps is the covenantal name of God. And when you go to the New Testament, you never see L-O-R-D in all caps. You never see that. You know what? I think that's a great tragedy in Bible translation. I, I really do as a pastor. I think it would clear up so many misconceptions about the deity of Jesus Christ if we just changed the way we presented the Bible. You know, we've got all kind of Bibles that we use. You know, there's the Bible for athletes, right? Uh, there's the Bible for business leaders. You know, you go to the bookstore, there's this, all kind of Bibles. The Bible for shoe repair, whatever. You know, <laughs> I, it's just, it's everywhere. And it, 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 it really, it gets kind of silly, right? But Jesus is Yahweh. He is Lord. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God in the flesh. Uh, And and that's what L-O-R-D means. It's what Lord means when it says Jesus Christ is Lord. It means that He is God who took on flesh without ceasing to be God. So we need a, a Yahweh study Bible. Or Jesus is Yahweh study Bible. Right? Maybe you could write that. You give some money, we'll get it printed. Right? But here's what I want to leave you with, and I'm continuing, I'm trying to unpack the glory of God, this abstract concept to you, but, and I'm going somewhere with this, just hang in there. Last, last week I booked um, my flight to um, Kenya in September, starting to get nervous about it already, um, and I had an option to go through Qatar, and I said, no, I'll, take, I'll pay $400 more and go through Amsterdam, right? I'm going to stay over here on the western side. Um, if it's okay with you people, they said, that's fine. That's no problem, right? And, you know, I'm going to go teach. Uh, I have the privilege of teaching pastors and church leaders a Bible survey course. It's the first group that's coming through the three-year curriculum. And I got, I got, them, I got them right out of the gate. Huh, no pressure, right? No pressure. But I'm going to teach them a Bible survey course 
class. Uh, and my goal for them is for, to get them to answer two questions. And same thing for you as a congregation. What is the Bible about? It's about Jesus. It all points to Jesus Christ. The glorious God who became man without ceasing to be God. And how does the Bible work? That's the second question. How does it work? How does it fit together? It's a pretty complicated document, right? Well, the Bible works through covenant. It works through covenants. And why is that such a big deal? Well, when God is the God of the covenant, He says to His people... And this is what he's doing with Moses. He's establishing this covenant with Moses. He's saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that is intensely personal language. Intensely personal language. And that language unfolds how? Through the covenants of Scripture. If you look at the history of the Bible, if you look at the covenants, you'll see how that God just works out his personality and his being with us through the covenants. And again, covenant, you know, it, it's, it's an abstract word just like glory. And, you know, we're Presbyterians and, you know, we're people of the covenant. But if you ask a bunch of you, okay, what does that mean? You go, well, I don't know. You know, you might give some some indication. Well, you know, we do, we, you know, we do the signs and seals of the covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper and... You know, but you're kind of like me. You kind of mumble around about trying to explain it. Um, but it's such an important thing for us to do. And, and this, let me finish this up by saying, even though covenant is, we don't need to leave it in the abstract. That's the point. What does it mean? Well, in the Bible, you have covenants between men and men, right? David and Jonathan. You remember that? They had a covenant. Um, if you look at um, the history, different um, countries would have covenants with one another and so forth. Um, there's just the, the analogy, the metaphor of the marriage covenant between Christ and his church and so forth. There, the covenant with Noah, on and on and on and on and on. So again, uh, my objective is to, to teach this to you and to these people in Kenya clearly and give them an explanation of who God is through the covenant. I think that's important. I wouldn't be a Presbyterian if I didn't, right? And I found, and I'm going to share this with you, a wonderful explanation of what a covenant is. Are you listening? If you haven't been listening, shake it off, listen to this. You know, the catechism, children's catechism says, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. Yeah, right, it is. But that's just like, that, that's, that does nothing for me. Does nothing. And uh, as I've studied a... a Philosopher, theologian over the past, I guess, year or so. I've been reading Esther Meek. I highly recommend her to you. But I found a wonderful explanation uh, that ties God's covenant with his glory. So I think we've got a home run here. Again, God's glory is his personal presence in all his goodness. That's his glory. So how does the covenant reveal God's personal presence in all his goodness? How? That's where we're going right now. We're heading towards the finish line. Please stick with me. First of all, it means that God's covenant with you and me through Christ is a covenant of love. And the center of the covenant is His love and grace. God has loved you. This passage refers to God choosing the poor of the world. He's going to talk about God chooses us. We see that throughout Scripture. In love, God chooses us to be His own. 
And because He's chosen you and me to be His own before the foundation of the world, God's covenant is not just love, it's an invitation. Did you get invitations to graduation ceremonies? Yes. God invites us into His life. God has invited you into His life to know Him, the life that is truly life. So God's covenant is love and invitation. And along with love and invitation, there's also a pledge in every covenant. God pledges His life to you. He loves you and gave His Son for you. He, what, what more do we need? He pledges His faithfulness. He pledges to forgive us. And we respond in love. That's what we do. We respond in love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say to the Lord, Yes, Lord, I want to be forgiven. Please forgive me. I want to be yours forever. So you have love, invitation, and pledge. Those are key words. But there's more. The covenant promises. In the covenant promises, what else does God tell us? He indwells you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will put my spirit in them. I will write my law on their heart. We'll talk more about that next week. God promises to indwell his people, to live in you. In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle in the temple, but now you and I are the temple. And that means that God goes with you and me wherever we are in our lives. Every moment of our life, God is with us. He is going before us and behind us. And that means we encounter him all the time. Or better, he encounters us all the time. And you and I both need to do a better job of paying attention to what God is doing in your life. Put the clues together. Individually, what's he doing in my life? What's he doing in my family? What's he doing in our church? And we figure that out as the temple. We figure that out together. You don't do it in isolation. And on a personal note, you know, I'm in this transition in my life. Lord willing, it's going to go um, like we think it's going to go. But I am so... Glad that I have you to help me in this transition. You don't know what a blessing it is to have this church and the elders and the presbytery. My, my friends help me figure this out. What a blessing. Are you talking to other people about what God is doing in your life? That's a great question to ask people. Not just being Mr. Holy. What is God doing in your life? No. What is God doing? Tell me about it. How is he moving towards you? Even in the hard things. Especially in the hard things. But he's moving towards you to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, if you weren't here for that first sermon that Grant preached on chapter 1 about counting it all joy. I'm just telling you, you need to go listen to that sermon. I told Grant, you're not going to preach any better than that. There's not going to be, you'll preach a lot of really good sermons, but you're not going to ever preach one better than that. And it's so succinct and so helpful to people, you and me, when we're going through hard things. It's the Word of God. And He opened it up to us by God's grace in a very a gracious way. And lastly, as Lord of the Covenant, God promises to transform us. He's at work, what we just talked about. 
He's making you more and more like Jesus. So, so every day, every day, that's His goal. You think God's going to achieve His goal? He's God. He certainly is. And so, so God loves us. This is what the covenant is. This is what it means to, to see God's glory. God loves you. He's inviting you into His life. He has invited and He's continuing to move in your life. To be part of, he wants you to be part of his life. He pledges every day to be faithful to you. Every day. He will never leave you or forsake you. He indwells you. He encounters you. And he is busy transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. And all of those things, these glorious things, are put legs on the covenant. And I hope, I hope that will be a blessing to you to think about at least some of those things. You'll hear them again. But they are coming into your life because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God has initiated with you, you are to initiate with others in response to His love. And therefore, you should not ever, and I should not ever, show favoritism. Because God invites us like we are to come into his glorious life through his covenant of grace. Let us pray.